0: We're going to be talking about nutrition and cardiovascular diseases in a few minutes. (laughs) Seeing a lot of familiar faces. (laughs) Okay, let's get started. So, nutrition and cardiovascular diseases is something you must have heard of so many times, you know, from common blogs on the internet to professional medical websites like WebMD and others, Netscape. And so this is the objective that we're going to be covering in this lecture. This is your assigned reading. Very quickly, um, we have to talk about the concept of obesity. Now, obesity is defined as a body mass index of greater than 30. And then what is the body mass index? This is just a good tool. It's a tool that helps us assess the amount or the fat content of the body. Okay? This, this tool is about the best that we have that is readily available. Right? It has a few exceptions. There are, you know, there are some persons who are very muscular And because they are not very tall, your BMI might be a little bit misleading. But for the general purpose, the BMI is a very good tool. And it uses your weight in kilogram and then the height in meter square. And with that little calculation there, you can get the BMI of an individual. This is also applicable in children, okay? And I have a link there that can help you measure your own BMI on the internet, you can actually work it out using pounds or whatever measuring system you choose to do. Now, there's been a correlation, you know, between the body weight and the um, predisposition to diseases and generally the weight status of an uh, to health status of an individual. And so, you can see what I quoted there that talked about the incidence of obesity. And also talks about how it's been on the rise it is increasing and so is also all the associated disease conditions so that is why everybody is talking about it and talking about what measures can be put in place you know everything is getting easier and faster to assess especially food you know you can use an app on your phone and order food from almost anywhere in the world and it gets delivered to somebody else in another location which is making food very easy to get you, you spend less energy assessing it and that just adds to the world's risk of obesity. You can diagnose obesity by mere looking at someone you can say well this person looks a bit on the big side you know but there are also much more objective ways of doing it. Um, we've talked about the BMI, and also you have the waist circumference. You can measure the waist circumference, and if it's greater than 40 inches for a man, that is, that is um, an assessment, that is an indication of obesity. And if it's greater than 35 inches for a female, that is also an indication of obesity. We also have the waist-heap ratio. This is a bit difficult to measure for some people, uh, but it's one of the ways that we can assess um, obesity. Okay. Now there are various distribution. There are various ways that fat could be distributed around the body, and some are much more. Some are much more indications of uh, a, a problem than the other ones. And we've all heard of this common apple and pear shape, uh, you know, fat distribution. What, what does it really entail? The apple shape is talking about central obesity, okay, which is, you know, accumulation of fat around the central part of the body, the abdomen, and most times it is from the visceral. You know, it's not, it's an it's like a, it gives you an idea of how much adipose tissue is accumulated within the visceral of the individual, and then we also have the the pear shape, which is more subcutaneous, okay. Uh, in the next slide, I'll be talking about how these uh, various fat depositions are being metabolized that really makes the other one a much bigger problem than the, api, uh, the, the pear shape. Okay, so looking at this picture which was taken from your recommended textbook, Lippincott, uh, uh, it shows us that the visceral um, adipose tissues, you know, the fat that is around the viscera, if it is broken down, it goes straight to the liver. And when it goes to the liver, what does the liver do? It produces it repackages those things and sends them out. And then they could go into vessels and then accumulate and become a problem. But if you have something from the subcute, you know, from the skin and other parts, it goes more into the central circulation and the body uses them up, you know, before it gets to the liver and then you know, so that's like, that gives you an idea that there's a safer way to store fat and there's a much more uh, problematic way, which is the, the central um, accumulation. triacylglycerol constitutes nearly 90% of adipocyte mass. Now, adipocytes on their own, in the past, we used to think, okay, these are just the guys that help us store fat. But over the years, it's been seen that they are, very important cells they do not just store fat but they also produce important hormones that help in the metabolism of energy in the body okay now we know that adipose tissues grow you can stretch them they can expand they can try as much as possible to accumulate more and more fat but what happens when you exceed their limit they multiply And that's where it becomes a problem because when you lose weight, sometimes you might never get back to your original state, right? Because just think of it, you have added more adipocytes, right? And you can see that simple illustration there that shows this adipocyte growing. And then somewhere along the line, they needed more room and they recruited some pre adipocytes. And you can see how many we ended up with in the end. Okay, all right, let's go on. Now, the metabolic effect of obesity is being highlighted in the slide, okay? Dyslipidemia, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance, okay? increased risk of cardiovascular diseases, okay? cardiovascular diseases or atherosclerotic, uh, generally seen atherosclerotic diseases, they are very huge. It can go from just cardiovascular, which affects the heart, to strokes, you know, that affects the brain, and sometimes we even have peripheral vascular diseases that affect other parts of the body, okay? There are some that has nothing to do with the cardiovascular systems, like uh, cancers and all that. These are all huge, huge problems, okay? And now this is just a slide that tries to show you how important, you know, the, you know, the um, atherosclerotic diseases uh, have become in the causes of death, you know, and you can see at the top top there, heart diseases, and uh, it's, talking about this is very hard for me at this moment, but I just, it, this is very, very real, and it's something that has happened to people that I know and that I care about, and so, just looking at it, it's. I'll just move on, and this is just an illustration of how um, adipose tissue metabolism can lead to atherosclerosis, uh, how it can damage the blood vessels, and eventually leading to other cardiovascular problems and other vascular issues. Now, looking at this picture, you can see a very smooth artery. Uh, And then because you have a lot of lipids, a lot of fat moving around in the blood, they could trigger injury to the vessel linings. And when these things happen, there will be some form of inflammation. Uh, I'm trying to tread the thin line between going into pathology and keeping it at nutrition biochemistry. But... I believe we all understand inflammation and inflammatory response. These are things that would happen when there was an injury in vascularized tissues in the body. At the end of it all, you would have accumulation of these lipids in the endothelial wall, which is within the blood vessels. Uh, and when this narrowing continued to happen, then you will have problems like angina, heart attack, stroke, Peripheral vascular diseases and all that. I think the next slide will be a clicker session. Uh, Let's see. Okay. Okay, let's see, oh great, and um, the majority is correct, which is option B, and option B says height in meters and weight in kilogram. Every other thing in this clinical vignette is really not so important. The last line actually gives it away, which is uh, which of those parameters would be helpful in estimating the BMI? To the 8% that chose um, the, op- the first option, the waste circumference is a measure that can be used on its own. You don't need to combine it with the height in meters. And for the 7% that chose the, the waste-to-heap ratio, uh, it's a good estimate. Um, remember, but the correct answer that we expect you to do. Uh, Big here is the B, uh, so we'll just move on from there. What are indicators of cardiovascular diseases? Now, indicators of cardiovascular diseases can be classified into the modifiable and the non-modifiable factors. What we simply mean is that there are factors that you are in control of. There are factors, there are situations that you just find yourself in. Uh, if you're a man, it's much more common among men. We don't have a control over that. Uh, not even if you change your sex, you're still a man. (laughs) So it is high in a man, okay? And I'm I'm just saying that from a very scientific perspective. The risk doesn't change. If you're a man, you have that risk. Uh, Increase in age is something you cannot change. As your age increases, the chances of this condition also increases. Females are protected up to a certain age, which means post-menopause, when the estrogen begins to drop, their risk become equal with the males. Okay, um, family history of premature heart diseases. This is a question your doctor must ask you. Most times, you know, when you present with any condition like that, they want to find out if you have a man in your family that had a, a cardiovascular problem below the age of 55. That's for men, or if you have a woman in your family that has a cardiovascular problem below the age of 65, this becomes significant risk factors, and your doctors must always ask you this. Um, What are the modifiable factors? These are things that we can actually do things about, and that's why we're having this discussion about nutrition. We can control our blood pressure. We can control diabetes if anyone is diagnosed. Cigarette smoking can be curbed. And um, lipids can be controlled by drugs, by diet, which is one of the reasons we're having this. And um, obesity, metabolic syndrome, all this can definitely be controlled to a great extent. Physical inactivity, which is the trending topic among both health professionals and non-medicals around the world. It's, It's becoming a big, big topic because we're we're beginning to see that in one way or the other, you know, we're just guilty of one thing. It's very hard to be free from everything. Oh, I don't smoke, but I sit on my desk for six to eight hours every day. That's a risk factor, you know. I don't um, have high blood pressure, but this and this and this, you know. So there's so many things that we can change. Um, So this slide is talking about how to balance the uh, energy uh, expenditure uh, with the energy intake, right? Keeping a positive energy balance will lead to storage, right? It is very simple. If you, if you, if you burn less than you consume, you will have storage. If you consume less than you burn, you, you will have a loss. So trying to keep a balance is very important. Uh, it's a problem. Either ways, right? That's why on this spectrum, we have obesity and all its problems. On the other spectrum, we have starvation, we have anorexia, and we have other problems which can also exist. So, so both ways can be a problem. We just need to balance it on that knife edge, okay? And I listed a lot of factors that can affect our intake and our outtake. There's environmental, bioviral. There are chemical factors, there are genetic factors as well. Now, the big, big thing, metabolic syndrome, we keep talking about metabolic syndrome you know, during the course of this lecture. In the past, there were a constellation of conditions that have been found to always occur together while we were trying to find out what exactly it was. It was called Syndrome X because we didn't really know what it was. You know, but over time, we have come to settle more with that name metabolic syndrome because we think we have enough insight into what this is about, okay? And it just tells us about how the following conditions, which is visceral adiposity, which, which is central obesity, insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, and pro-inflammatory states can all come together to lead to atherosclerosis condition and cardiovascular diseases. So all this put together is just what we call syndrome, uh, metabolic syndrome. Okay, So in some, in some materials, you may see it as syndrome X slash metabolic syndrome. It's basically talking about the same thing. These are the criteria that help us define metabolic syndrome. Now take a good look at that criteria because it is important. You know, in the practice of medicine, some some things are just so important you'll be like what if it's 99 but that decides who takes drugs and who does not that decides who gets placed on a medication or not that justifies if the insurance is going to cover this or not you know so these values are very important uh, you know so it may be little you may be it may look too nitpicky but they are all very important criteria so Fasting blood sugar greater than 100, so elevated waist circumference of 40 inches in men or 35 in female. The triglyceride level greater than 150 and um, the HDL cholesterol less than 40 for men or less than 50 for women. We always call it good and bad, you know, but remember in the small group when we said you know, the good and bad is not really like, it's good to just refer to them in their real terms, LDL, HDL. And then elevated blood pressure, greater than 130 millimeters of mercury systolic, over 80 millimeters uh, mercury of diastolic. Now physical inactivity, like I've said, it's a big problem in recent times. That brought about the new term that is so trending Noon. Um, sitting is the new smoking. Every time I see pictures about that, I try to think about going through med school where we had to sit down for six to eight hours. Okay. Okay, so it's a constellation of all these criteria that we call metabolic syndrome. Okay? We do not take one of it in isolation and say that this person has metabolic syndrome. So it's a constellation of all of them. When we see now, when we see the following criteria happening in a person, then we can say, okay, you have metabolic syndrome. But like I said, you do, not, um, take, you do not take one in isolation because if you have elevated blood pressure in isolation, then I can say you are a hypertensive, right? I'll just call you a hypertensive. If you have just the waist hip ratio, I'll probably say you're just obese, right? But when I see all the other factors co-occurring, then I'll say this is metabolic syndrome. so i have a little collage that i put, t- put together to try to explain what we have in the old slide talking about inactivity you know, just random things but the more i look at it the more it's concerning you know these people who have gone so much into the studies of what changes in our body the longer we sit and I mean, there are so many things I can see some people trying to move their legs to make sure, <laughs> you know, I do that too. It just creates the awareness and they are trying to develop, you know, desks that can be pulled up so you can actually stand a bit and walk in your office. And I actually saw like a treadmill desk kind of thing where, you, yeah, it's, it was really funny and uh, you can actually have a treadmill and then have a standing office. And still walk while you I am now thinking about the hazard what if you fall <laughs> then you get a head injury and at least you don't get the cardiovascular condition That's, I don't know yeah but come to think of it as doctors you would not have to worry about this because most of our lives were walking around you know I can't think of a doctor or a resident sitting down for an hour you know you were always it's always very busy, so we're probably kind of protected from that. I hope so. <laughs> so, what is enough in terms of physical activity? This is something that is also a little bit difficult to decide. You know, because sometimes we feel, well, I get some workout now and then. Um. So there have been, people would generally say 30 minutes every day for five, I mean, five days a week is probably adequate to protect your heart, right? So that would give us some cardiovascular benefits, right? But we know that with our schedule, you know, sometimes you are not able to put in a consistent routine weekly. Uh, Some people have been termed weekend warriors, where over the weekend, they would do all they can do for the week, and then they just get through the week. So whatever works for you, yeah, you know, we're just trying to preach generally that physical activity is good, and uh, we can get that by doing various things. Yeah. And when it comes really to diet, what is the problem with diet and cardiovascular condition? Salt, for example, very key part of our diet for taste and also for provision of sodium, right? It is very important in our food. However, the quantity is a big issue. Um, so too much salt is a problem. Carbohydrate, yes, an important source of energy. But the, the type of carbohydrate that we eat is something that can also be controlled. And I know it's being preached every time people talk about, whole grain, bread, wheat bread, as against white bread, and all that, and so watching the type of carbohydrate that we take is important. The fiber, fiber is something that we've been encouraged to consume uh, adequate amounts. Sometimes fiber is also therapeutic. There are some people who present with constipation or some problems in the hospital, and the doctor will simply recommend more fiber for them. Fruits, vegetables, and nuts, these are also very good sources of vitamins and antioxidants, and so we need to consume a lot of that as well. Now, DASH diet, dietary approach to stop hypertension. Typically, to make a diagnosis of hypertension and to manage hypertension in the hospital, it's not from a single encounter. It's not from a single visit. When You present to your doctor most times, except people who present in hypertensive emergencies that you need to, you know, intervene, crash the blood, you know, bring the blood pressure down as quick as possible and all that to avoid end organ damage. Most times when people present with essential hypertension, which is the most t- common type of hypertension, your doctor does, just, does not just place you in drug right away. Sometimes we may have to get two readings or three readings from separate visits. And when we finally say, okay, it looks like this is hypertension, this is high blood pressure, The first approach usually sometimes is just lifetime modification. Well, lose some weights, um, change your diet, cut down on the salt, you know. After trying these measures, then we can begin to try medications, because most times these are medications that people have to take for life. So we're never in a hurry to commence patients on medications. Okay, and that's most of the things that um, the Dash Diet is talking about. So Dash Diet, the link I have there just leads you to a place where you would see series of things that have been itemized that can be done to help um, stop systemic hypertension. Now, the slide I have here is talking about how food become, you know, how food can go from you know non-processed to processed and how the sodium contents can increase dramatically. And we know that trying to, sodium has been implicated, of course, in high blood pressure. And so that is the big thing where, and that is why a lot of people are going against processed food and try to go more with organic and natural and natural. And so that is what that slide just tries to show us. You can look at whole milk, and then you can see an instant chocolate pudding. You can see meat. And then you can see your chipped beef, your teriyakis and all that. You can see the vegetables and also see the end product. Now, adding more sodium to food preserves the lifespan of that food, right? But the effect on us, it's not um, the best, okay? This is just a slide taken from the recommended textbook. It talks about the macronutrients and the requirements that we will need. Usually macronutrients are not a big, big problem, so but we'll just move on. But emphasis is on the fiber, okay? Now let's really talk about the classes like carbohydrates. These are the quickest source of energy. Uh, almost everybody, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say, I will not consume any carb. you know, it's very difficult. Though there have been people who have studied over time There were some studies I read on the internet that said we were never meant to consume carbohydrates, we were never meant to consume glucose because our body can produce glucose. That's why we have gluconeogenesis. And I read and read and read and I said to myself, well, who knows, maybe someday everything we've known about our food may change, you know, but for now, we consume carbohydrates at recommended amounts, right? There are different forms of it. You can have the monosaccharides, the disaccharides, right, and the polysacs as well. Now, the monosaccharides are kind of refined sugars. Most of them taste sweet, uh, and they're readily available. If you have someone in hypoglycemia, if you're an emergency response person, uh, and you know that this is really hypoglycemia, it's one of the things that can be given to the patient, and, you know, it's dramatic. If we have some of our friends or ourselves or some of our parents who are diabetics, and if they notice that they are trembling or shaking, they suspect that, oh, my sugar is probably low. With just a cube of sugar, they are back and functioning. So are of course, are a very important um, uh, component of the carbohydrates. Now the disaccharides are also slightly a step ahead of the monosaccharides, they are just complex and they can easily be s- split into two to generate the, the, carbo- uh, the, the kind of the, the useful starch, okay? It's easy to just break them down to give you glucose which can be metabolized by glycolysis and can move on if it's aerobic to, to the TCA and everything that can follow, okay? and these are the sources out there. Now the polysaccharides themselves are the big ones. They don't usually taste sweet. They take their time to digest in the gut. Now what that means is that they do not cause a sudden surge of insulin in your system because they are not really sugar per se. And this is good for several reasons, um, especially when you don't need that rapid sugar, in the system, um, if you consume this kind of uh, class of carbohydrates, then it takes their time to break down, and then your sugar is better controlled. your insulin is better controlled. okay? These are the sources that they could be found from. Now the topic, uh, the glycemic index is just talking about the ease with which glucose is made available from that food substance. Now we could say that the monosacs will be more or less thrown into circulation because they are just absorbed, right? The disacs are just one step away and then the polysacs take a little bit more time to break down and that explains the changes in the glycemic index, okay? Now but it's not only the glycemic index that is a problem. Now we've gone one step ahead to calculate what is known as the glycemic load. Okay, Glycemic index is how readily glucose can be made available, but the glycemic load itself tells you the total amount of energy that can actually be derived from this um, food substance. So that can be calculated by multiplying the glycemic index by the amount of uh, of carbohydrates that you have and divide by 100 that will give you like the glycemic load of each food substance so you may find that when you study further. so we just didn't bother you about that fiber Um, I put a picture of a boy there who's munching something that we are actually just encouraged to consume more fibers there are so many benefits of fibers apart from being a class of food apart from being able to fill your fill you up so you don't necessarily need to eat so much. Uh, it also has the ability to help in the movement of food in the gut, okay? And uh, it also has an effect on lipids, little effect here and there, but I've kind of starred the most important f- um, feature, you know, with respect to cardiovascular condition, okay? Now dietary fats are the big, big class here, and um, we have various classes of the dietary fats. We have the saturated fats. We have the unsaturated fats, okay? Now the saturated fats, pretty straightforward. There is no double bond. Everything, every carbon atom is you know, completely surrounded. Uh, these guys have been found to be bad. For a very long time, so we've been trying to shift away from food um, sources of fat that are saturated, right? And you can actually make fat saturated by hydrogenating it. Just think about something: a carbon that has a free double bond. All you need to do is put in more hydrogen, and then it takes the space, right? So hydrogenation can actually make fat to be saturated more. Uh, So for the unsaturated, it could be monounsaturated, which means it just has a single double bond, or it can be polyunsaturated. And then we have some unsaturated that are still not good, which is the trans fat. The trans is though unsaturated, but because of the configuration of the double bond, it is a problem and is also being discouraged. It's a good source. That was the first idea that came to mind when we got tired of saturated fats and when we found out they were very bad. We were like, oh, let's go to trans fats. And then after a while, we also figured out that though trans fats can prevent food from going rancid. They can help to preserve food, but they are also bad. So right now, we're focusing more on the unsaturated, okay? So that's the saturated that I talked about. Of note is that 14 and 16 carbon chains are the most notorious, you know, for increasing the serum cholesterol, okay? The 18 carbon um, chain, which is actually seen in chocolate and some other food substance, happen not to really be involved in raising the LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol. The mono, like I talked about, one double bond, and these are the sources where you can see it, and these are the benefits that you can derive from it wholly unsaturated, having more than one double bond available. Depending on which location you have the double bond, it can be omega, uh, and then if it's omega, then you can have omega-6 or omega-3 fatty acids. And these are examples as well. Okay, So I just have a structure showing just to illustrate what we mean by the position three and position six. The trans fatty acids I already talked about, I told you that though they have a double bond, which means they are unsaturated, they are still not good because they raise the HDL, and they reduce the HDL cholesterol and they raise the LDL cholesterol. Now dietary cholesterol, a little bit of you know depending on your kind of diet you can get cholesterol from outside sources right but we also make cholesterol in the body so uh, many times we talk about cholesterol as if these are just very bad things stay away from cholesterol no every single membrane in our body every single cell in our body needs cholesterol in its membrane to maintain its shape and its fluidity right and then as humans, most, we have a lot of hom- uh, hormones in our body that are actually steroid hormones, which means they have cholesterol. So your need for cholesterol is also there, and so that must be met as well. Okay? But there's a recommended amount which I have shown to you, which is what it's been um, trying to achieve. Okay, I have another one. Sorry I didn't warn you. <laughs> Okay. Uh, This reminds me of your question. It's somewhat related, but the question is just asking which one of these would support the diagnosis. Once again, most of the vineyards are not really necessary. Uh, So a serum HDL of 42 for a man is good, it's acceptable. When it becomes less than 40 for a man, that's a problem. For females, less than 50. It's not acceptable, so if this was a a female, then those who chose B would have been correct, okay? Uh, other than that, the C is the correct answer, okay? Remember 100 for the blood glucose, and what we have up here is 96, okay? This is just a chart that was taken from your recommended textbook. It just simply shows you where some of this Um, fat that we consume, where they lie in the spectrum of unsaturated against saturated um, fat. And this is like a summary that just shows you the benefits and the harmful effects of the types of fat, starting from the trans, the saturated, the monounsaturated, the poly, and that's pretty much very self-explanatory chart. Alcohol in moderate quantities is good. I said that the last time, and some people were like, no, you should never say that alcohol is bad. But as doctors, you must lay down the facts the way they are. Uh, there is, there are. There are benefits of moderate, moderate only. Okay. So now you have to look at what is moderate, what is heavy, and what is a binge drink. But the very truth is that if you look very closely at the literature, it is very easy to binge drink how many persons goes out drinking with friends and cannot go beyond two or three or four bottles of a beer when you're just talking and play? it's it's easy to get over so that's why nobody encourages no doctor will tell you take this amount and you're fine okay antioxidant vitamins they're important and consuming moderate amounts of them is necessary okay the tricyglycerol-HDL ratio, we already established that tags are so many in the body, and that's like the common form of storage of fat. So the more you increase your fat storage compared to the HDL cholesterol, the more problems you are likely to run into. Okay. Some of these um, water-soluble vitamins, I'll call them, they are very important. And... Um, we can get them from various sources of food. They are very important in many metabolisms in the body. And there's also, they've also been implicated in cardiovascular conditions. This is just something for you to take note of. This is a summary of the benefits you can get from weight loss. And we have also established that diet is an important way to lose weight as much as physical activities and generally lifestyle modification can affect our weight and our weight can affect our health. And with this chat, uh, that will be the end of the lecture. If you have any question, thank you. Thank you.